Do you get nervous talking on these? I didn't until you said that. Yeah, sorry. Right. <laughs> uh, no, right. There's no audience. I'm good, man. Yeah. Um, we're only good. And feel free to just like rephrase whatever you want. If you want to say something. Welcome to Why Different. On a cold, sunny January afternoon in a loft in Brighton, I got to sit down with Harold Heath. Harold is a DJ, producer, author and writer of two paradigm-shifting articles on neurodiversity and club culture in DJ Mag, which I can't recommend highly enough. Harold brings us into a world where the beats of electronic music meet the unique rhythms of a neurodivergent mind. From spinning records to spinning tales, Harold's life has been deeply intertwined with music, only to discover later in life that his atypical perspective was actually shaped by autism and ADHD. Now, in society that often misunderstands and sidelines minds like his, Harold's story is one of adjustment, acceptance, and the power of embracing one's true self. In our discussion, we touch on themes of emotional regulation, societal acceptance, and the intersectionality of identity and creativity. I hope you enjoy it and learn as much as I did. If you're listening on Voices Radio, unfortunately you won't get the whole episode because we're limited to one hour. However, the link is now available on Spotify. So please listen there to catch the full episode. Harold, thank you for coming on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Music writer, former DJ. Renaissance man, let's say. <laughs> right. I'll let you expand on that. Yeah. And I have a bunch of questions that I'd like to ask. But what I'm most excited to talk to you about is your creativity cool over my life i've always had a creative outlet which has operated as a a bridge to the neurotypical world right mm. so when i was a little kid i used to just draw pictures all the time i right. wonder if i wasn't at school i'd just be doing loads of art and i was considered the slightly weird kid who did art i was really good at art right are we working all right the mic's working okay do you need to check one two one two one two yeah uh then i got a bit older i got into break dancing and i was really good at break dancing it was a kind of creative thing uh same with kind of doing graffiti art i was really into that as well and i tended to be terribly into these things like really full-on you yeah. know 100 committed uh, and then i got into djing same kind of thing then i got into music production so i've always had that one creative thing that uh for me I realize now has been like my bridge to the neurotypical that's my way of sort of saying hello here i am this is this is me. This is what I've got. Right. Because maybe yeah. I can't reach them in other ways. And I only really realised that, that that's what that was. Right. Yeah. In the last couple of years, post-diagnosis. After you got diagnosed. Yeah, yeah. So you were diagnosed just recently? Yeah. Yeah. How many years ago and how old were you? So my autism diagnosis was this year, 51. Yeah. And my ADHD was the year before, so I would have been 50. Pretty late. Feels quite late. Yeah, I mean... I mean, you know, there's no point in... There's nothing I can do about that. It would have been better had it been earlier. Yeah, you, you believe that? Yeah. yeah. Every year that I was undiagnosed was traumatic. Yeah. And I think those uh, trauma piles up and grows. And do you know what I mean? So every year, particularly the last 10 years, yeah. it was quite heavy going. Yeah. I not think. knowing what the fuck was wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah. Are we good to swear on the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Bollocks. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'd like you to expand on that a bit because it is common to hear phrases such as everyone's got this or that and the risk is of course that it invalidates or minimises the experience of somebody going through something very life-defining. Yeah, I think people think ADHD is, 
they lose their keys a lot, for example. They think that's, I fucking wish that's what it was. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. um, or it's, hey, look, there's a squirrel. We're in mid-conversation, but I've been distracted. And, you know, it's no one's fault that that's the popular image of what ADHD is. But um, it's not funny. And I don't care about being occasionally distracted or whatever. You know, it's the emotional stuff that is a lot less funny to deal with, right? Mm. I don't know where you're at with that, but certainly... Uh, Rejection, sensitive, blah, blah, all that business. Do you know what I mean? It's just no 100%. fun. It's the most unfunny thing in the world. And Rejection, sensitive dysphoria. Yeah. And, you know, I just think the public perception of what this is, particularly ADHD is completely, and autism as well, because it's completely wrong and blunt and clumsy and unhelpful. And uh, I don't even remember what the question which, was. Which aspects of it are? Uh, I think if you ask someone what they thought, someone who didn't know what they thought ADHD is, they'd, they'd, someone's a bit forgetful, they loses their keys, and oh, we all do that sometimes, aren't oh, a bit forgetful? Oh, you, uh, or, you know, you interrupt quite a lot or whatever. It's kind of a low-key uh, look at the very top level of symptoms that immediately impact someone, I guess, without any knowledge of the depth of emotional issues and um, terrible work you might have to put in in order just to fucking function. It's, right. yeah, it almost feels like the very first description of it, God knows how many years ago, looking at hyperactive young boys as, young, as little as, white boys right as, a, yeah and it's bollocks it should the name of it is ridiculous as well attention yeah. deficit hyperactive first it's just, i mean you know it's not a deficit of attention there's usually too much attention the problem if there's a problem is where that attention falls right that's right it's incorrectly named the hyperactivity it's often internal for me do you know what i mean there'll be times when i'm furiously hyperactive internal but people would expect me to be you know, whatever, running around like a little five-year-old boy who we think, you know, that, mm. that kind of stereotypical idea of what ADHD is. Say with autism, I mean, with the best will in the world, even you're seeing uh, autistic characters on TV at the moment more and more. Yeah. They're often a bit ridiculous, aren't they? A bit savant, or they've got these special skills, but they can't feel emotion. They're so bluntly drawn. Right. Know, as though all autistic people either can't feel empathy or have this kind of special skill, do you know what I mean? Right. It's the same as that, or it's similar to that ADHD superpower narrative, which is all well and good, but it's bollocks, right? <laughs> I don't know what you think about I, that? I, I don't feel superpowered. I take a, a similar position. I think it's well-intentioned, but oh, very, another yeah. over, oversimplification of... Very well-intentioned, and very it's the complex. product of a very difficult time that we're in where we're trying to stick our heads above the parapet for the first time and reclaim who we are and just try and live a bit more authentically. So I totally get it. Yeah. And I think if it works for some people, it's fucking lovely, man. But if hyperfocus is a superpower, it's an extraordinarily difficult, expensive and capricious superpower, right? Yeah. I have no fucking control over it, and sometimes it is not very pleasant, yeah. right? And yeah. depending on where it falls... Yeah. You know, it might give me a migraine later on in the day or whatever. You, know, you always pay for it, right? That's right, yeah. Like if, if Spider-Man, when he shot his web, it didn't necessarily come out in a fine stream. It might just blow yeah. back in his face. Well, it <laughs> might do a to... really good job of just apprehending everyone in view or, you know, yeah. something like that. You know, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a double-edged sword and it's not very all... So. Yeah. And I don't think it's very helpful. I mean, not every neuro neurodivergent person possesses a superpower. What about them? Do you know what I mean? If they're just getting along being a person and they don't have a superpower, yeah. where does that narrative leave them? Absolutely. So I don't, I, yeah, and also, do we have to have superpowers for you to accept us? That's or can you just fuck off and... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, I definitely, <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting perspective. And I think it, it, tells, it tells me a bit more about you because from your book... My book, Harold Heath, Long Relationships, Incredible Journey from Unknown DJ to Small Time DJ, available now. Available now, all good bookstores. Yeah, all that kind of Only thing. the best. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll come on to that and we'll discuss that in, in detail. But 
one of the reviews that I found really interesting. And this is a quote by DJ Colin Dell. Excellent, well-written book, which looks at the scene from a perspective we don't usually get, filled with great stories and anecdotes, had me hooked from the beginning to the end. The bit that I found really interesting was from a perspective we don't usually get. Mm. Tell us what your book is about. I wrote it at the time when there were a few DJ books coming out, but they tended to be written by really successful DJs who uh, uh, you know, played at the top level, paid really good fees and you know, had amazing experiences. And I'm interested in all levels of DJing, but I didn't think that that was the experience of many DJs. Mm. Certainly the top guys who really had that experience. I thought my story was really relatable and valid. Yeah, my story is very much of a kind of low to mid-range DJ um, who didn't get that material success. But in writing that book, I found out that uh, success can be measured in very different ways. And I was very, uh, very happy with my career where it was. It gave me a lot. It really defined my life. And I took a lot of joy, love, happiness and many more things from it and back to my day-to-day life. Hmm. So although I didn't get to play you know, a residency in Ibiza and achieve that kind of success... The book kind of made me realise just how successful I was. A life spent doing what you love is pretty successful, right? Of course. I've made the book sound quite dry. It's full of good jokes as well. (laughs) I was going to ask about how you describe yourself. Low level. Yeah. You use that term often. I guess, yeah, because you've got to put yourself somewhere. Um, In the context of that book, it is about, um, yeah, where you fall in the hierarchy of DJs and what that then gives to you as a DJ. Mm. what doors it opens and what doors still remain shut I guess do you think that it perhaps undersells your actual value to you know a couple of people said that to me it depends how you look at it because on you know I did have quite limited success I had quite a few records that did okay it depends how you look at it do you know what I mean Um, how do you look at it when you I think when I wrote it it was uh, prior to my diagnosis and funnily enough, I look, I look through that yeah. book and I can see there are bits where it is screaming, dude, you are autistic. Dude, you have got... Do you know what I mean? It's literally there. I can, I'm, there are passages where I describe what I feel like in the party, party mm. being slightly disconnected yeah. but happy to be a part of it. There's a part where I discuss how I feel a lot of my lack of success was due to the fact I wasn't particularly sociable after parties. I didn't quite fit in with the kind of Hellraiser DJ. I like to go and read books and play chess or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, so what's the question? Do you believe that you're sort of low level, um, yeah. as you describe? So, so, well, yeah, I mean, at the t- so at the time, yeah, it was pre-diagnosis, and I think I would probably have been more self-depreciating than I would be now. Mm. I think now I'm a bit more able, post-diagnosis and a year and a half of therapy and medication, a little bit more able to own my own successes we were speaking before we started recording about the inability of a lot of neurodivergent people to accept their successes to own their own successes to accept compliments Um, and I think perhaps there's a part of the way I wrote that book that kind of feeds into that a little but also I was a low to mid-range DJ as well I mean like I say it depends on where if you look at it from below where I was from all the thousands of DJs across the country who never put a record out and never got above playing in their own local pub, then I was pretty successful. But ADHD people, autistic people are often always striving, right? Just keep going. Don't even look at where we are for a moment. You just achieve something and move the buck on. So I think maybe the frame of the book is informed by that. And I've never thought that until now. That's really interesting. Yeah. I I love Plastic City. And I was listening to records and my friend was, I was like, on Plastic City, that's like such a well-regarded label. Interesting that we say that because what fucking cool label.
you you know you release two albums you release yeah. over 100 yeah. tracks and in remixes and to some reputable labels yeah so i guess you can look at it from a sort of commercial success point of view mm. as a sort of purist musician thoroughbred of the craft and i'm interested in whether you still believe you're a low-level DJ. Yeah, because I always compared myself to... I mentioned a couple of producers in the book, uh, like Bushwhacker or Assad Rizvi, mm. both particularly good dance music producers in terms of the quality of their productions. They really, yeah. you know, they know their stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I know I never achieved that level. Yeah. I can kind of say objectively, I wouldn't have the knowledge to be able to get that level of production. Technically? Yeah. Okay, I get that. Yeah. yeah. I think I'm similar in, I love Deep House, but my base is definitely in, in like hip hop. Mm. And from studying a lot of the producers and how they describe working with different artists, some artists you think are amazing mm. and they tear them apart. We won't go into sort of like names, but some artists are absolutely meticulous and are incredible yeah. and people don't like to work with them. Yeah. And others are quite sloppy and rely on tricks of the trade to right. make them sound good and their target really is just to get the numbers that, that's like the, there are two extremes i'd say of, of the spectrum mm. but then i think that people can fall in between and i'm not a technical producer by any stretch of the imagination but i do like the idea of emotion that comes with okay. song. Yeah. and i try and pick out the bits of the music that make me feel a certain type of way because you can love a song and have no idea why. And I think that's for a lot of people. And I am really interested in the effect music can have on your neurology and how it can make you feel, how that can impact your health in, you know, on a greater scale. Okay. You might hear like, ah, oh, three minutes 36 in this track. I love it. It just gives me this feeling of like being on holiday or something. And you don't know that it's because you hear that like violin panned extreme right that gives you that little adrenaline shot. And now learning a bit more about how the brain works, it's interesting how you choose music partly because of how you like to be comforted. Mm -hmm. And that's going to sound soft. No. But you know, it just soothes me. Yeah. yeah. Do you see what I mean? Very real way. I wonder whether you, when you produce, there are those bits where you've added something or taken something away and that's like therapy. It's been so long since I produced. Um, I think the very last thing I made was in 2019. It was always very th therapeutic, the process of uh, mm. making music. I would always achieve a flow state, lose myself in it, lose loads of time. Describe the flow state. Kind of forget where I was or be very in the present moment of creating something. And as I'm doing it, I'm semi-consciously connecting other ideas in my head and then having them happen as I'm interacting with the machines. And I'm sounding too pretentious, but yeah, kind of not really being quite aware of where you are or having really a... Uh, almost unconscious driven creative behavior mm. yeah it's not a state of enjoyment uh, it's phenomenally satisfying enjoyment isn't quite what it is yeah. but i was drawn to it every day and would sit myself down there and lock myself in there until i somehow achieved that thing without really knowing what because again all my production was before my diagnosis i didn't really know what it was that i was chasing i just knew that i didn't feel good when i wasn't doing something like that mm. it's the same feeling i got from doing graffiti art or drawing or whatever as a do you know what i mean it's the same thing but just in different forms. So yeah, uh, what's the question again? Uh, I was asking about the flow state. Uh, yeah, so the flow state, is, yeah, just getting into that. Uh, it's just um, a beautiful, special, wonderful thing. Where are you going? I'm gonna turn the heating on just in oh, case right, it's gonna be cold. Um, it's a wonderful, special, magical thing. That's what they talk about with hyperfocus. And when you can make it happen, 
It is a wonderful thing. The flow state. Yeah. Yeah, because it is like a hyperfocus, isn't it? But yeah, not just it, it a hyperfocus. But I wonder sometimes if there's other elements involved as well. Like I think you can get into that kind of dopamine feedback where the work you're doing is so satisfied. Oh, I fucking love this and do yeah. some more. I think that is definitely a part of it. But I think there are sometimes occasions in my creative process where I am driven to complete something or to work at it at a level of intricacy and detail that other people might consider unnecessary that I yeah. almost find unpleasant and it can be a bit much and I might be really needing a piss and my back is aching but I'm going to fucking finish it and I yeah. guess that's a high level of attention that produces really good work but that isn't always pleasant yeah it can be quite unpleasant yeah yeah but you still find yourself is that monotropism fixed. That's right, exactly. So, so, so there's two things there, right? There's yeah, there's the fun ADHD thing, and then there's the autistic, almost obsessive, compulsive, not not OCD, but almost a compulsive drive to finish a task at a high level of detail, that often leads to brilliant work, but sometimes can be a little unpleasant or uncomfortable. Yeah, it comes yeah. coming at a cost. And the yeah, monotropism is when an individual focuses on a task or interest with great diligence and high level of detail. Yeah. And often that can happen when you're supposed to be doing something else. This is the thing I was saying. It's, it's, who knows if it's hyperfocus or if it isn't. Some mornings I get up and I take my medication, I'm on Ritalin. And if I'm not careful, if I focus on the wrong thing, oh, fuck, I've just lost two hours making a really good playlist. I don't, do you know what I mean? For something completely unrelated. But I just went down this wormhole and realised there was these connections between these producers and this label. And I have to suddenly draw that information together. And then I do this brilliant piece of kind of audio curation for no fucking reason. I was like, damn. Yeah. It's that excess of focus that went somewhere it shouldn't have gone, right? You know what I mean? Trevor Noah said, essentially, people say ADHD, that you have an inability to pay attention. It's not that you have an inability to pay attention. It's that you don't get to choose what to pay attention to. Yeah, well, you have to really be careful about it. Yeah. Yeah, learn to really manage that reality. Bring yourself back. Yeah, and that's one of the bigger things that people suffer with, I think. How would you define neurodiversity and how does it play out in your life? So how would I define it? We're all neurodiverse in that we all have different brains that work differently, right? Mm. But there is also within that an average neurobiology. Right. And then there are those who are unaverage. Okay. And we could group together autistics, dyslexics, people with Tourette's within that unaverage. And the average? The people who don't have that. Other than just the typical. Right? Yeah, yeah, typical. So, and there's probably one in five of us and the rest are kind of them, us and them. <laughs> you get so that. I guess that's how, yeah, I am. I, yeah. Honestly, I kind of am. Um, but yeah, so I guess that's how I would define it. Um, yeah, I'm reading a lot about it at the moment and I'm up in the air about these terms. Um, but yeah, without which you either complicate things, that's how I would define it. And what's the other question? How does it... How, yeah, how, how does it show up in your life? Yeah, how does neurodivergence play into my life? Well, tough question. I mean, as, is it something that completely defines how I think and feel and act about everything? It's obviously played quite a big role in every moment of my life. But I didn't know that until a couple of years ago when I was diagnosed. Mm. Um, yeah. And yeah. if you can give some perspective to somebody who knew nothing about getting diagnosed with ADHD and autism at an advanced age. How would you describe that feeling? And what has it done to your 
Let me say that again. Mm. Um, it's a tough question. Yeah. What has it done to your identity mm. and sort of how you see yourself? So I've now become massively autistic and I'm now an autistic person and I'm now massively ADHD and I've completely embraced it as a part of who I am. Kind of almost as a way to try and dispel some of the lifelong trauma of being undiagnosed and assuming that the problems I were having were the fault of my personality or my character mm. or just some inherent failing that I was somehow broken or wrong. I just couldn't make certain things work. Never lived up to my potential, had problems, uh, social problems, all those kind of things. Mm. So since I've been diagnosed, I've become evangelically neurodivergent, kind of obsessed with it. It's kind of become my autistic special interest. Mm. But also the process of getting diagnosed and then going into therapy and learning about what's happened over my life to get me here. That process uh, leads you to start seeing if you can unmask, they call it. So you, you develop a lot of uh, behaviours and strategies when you're undiagnosed to kind of help you navigate a world that you don't quite understand that doesn't quite work for you. And those strategies, they might not serve you in later life, mm. but they still exist. And you, you're kind of locked into these patterns of behaviours and opinions about yourselves. We spoke about the difficulty of a lot of neurodivergent people to accept compliments or to understand that they've done well at something. Mm. That can often be part of a strategy or learned behaviour that you learnt because you've never done very well at stuff or because you were constantly criticised. It's that ridiculous uh, piece of... I um, don't know how they came up with it, but apparently an ADHD child has had... How many more thousands? Yeah, 20,000 more criticisms by yeah. age 10. Yeah, so you take all that stuff on board and, yeah, going into therapy and kind of unpacking all that has been quite the challenge. Mm. But ultimately, ultimately good. But, yeah, like I say, you know, you go through this process. I have been going through a process of trying to unmask and trying to undo those patterns and try and sort of be a bit more authentic to myself. You know, a lot of those patterns of behaviour are quite self-destructive. I haven't been helpful. And, like I say, they no longer serve me. So you go through this process of trying to look at who you actually are rather than this kind of version that you've been presenting to people. That's quite a big deal, mm. right? Huge deal, yeah. um, but one that is invisible to people from the outside looking in. Can you give an example of, if you're comfortable to answer, of course, mm. of masking that was most prevalent or you now in retrospect think was most problematic? I think most of them are problematic in some way. So... Um, for my entire life, if I was in a conversation with someone I and they asked a question, two things happen, right? First thing, if you ask me a question, my autistic brain comes up with a fucking thorough answer, right? It will draw on all my information and it will possibly make some connections between ideas that I've never made it before and it will start assembling this superb fucking answer. But a neurotypical person might not have meant that question. It might have been a, a rhetorical question or just passing the time. And so for my entire life, I've had to decode whether that's what's happening. Do they actually want this brilliant fucking thorough answer that will give them all the information they want? Or is it just a rhetorical? So, I never, so I've always got to do that work, right? That, uh, yeah. that work to work out, to decode what they want. And meanwhile... I've got a massive itch in my brain because they've made all these connections happen. And what am I supposed to do with this, right? And I'm quite fucked off about that now and I'm not fucking doing that anymore. So if someone asks me a fucking question, I'm going to answer it how I fucking want. And if they don't like it and if they start rolling their eyes or getting bored because it's really long, perhaps they should ask me the question they fucking want to be answered. <laughs> and that, my friend, is where I'm at at the moment with this. And I get that that sounds a bit stroppy and aggressive, but 
Like I say, I've been going through my entire life wasting my precious brain resources, which are already strained, at just trying to hold it down to function in a neurotypical world. Wasting my time trying to work out, do you mean that? Is that a rhetorical question? Can I, do you know what I mean? But, but doing that unmasking has been quite difficult because obviously I think it comes across as being quite um, obtuse or deliberately difficult right. or a bit odd or a bit deliberately long-winded or trying to take things um, literally. Yes. It's... So I, I end up just begging people for clear communication. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Can you just be clear? Say what you mean. That's all yeah. I would ever ask. But I realise now that that's very difficult. So the process of unmasking in that area has been helpful but very difficult it's very difficult for the people around me because it you know yeah. this guy has been you know a lot easier to get on with in the past in some ways you know but I kind of feel like do you want me or do you want the good person I'm pretending to be if you don't want me if you want the person you fell in love with they're not really do you know what I mean they're not real and they might not be around no more yeah. which is difficult I think that can be one of the uh I've, I've been in therapy since I was diagnosed and my therapist warned me almost a couple of months in, that people will expect you to do the emotional labour to help them through. Whereas, you know, you can guarantee I'm the least able person to do that ever, but especially when I'm in this particularly traumatic period of adjusting to my diagnosis. But yet my neurotypical friends, some of them have very much expected me to do that work, to hold their hands and to take them through it and to guide them and have had some odd opinions about that on the way. Do you know what I mean? So that has been surprisingly challenging. Having said that, other people have been unreservedly, wonderfully welcoming and not given a fuck and just been happy with who I am. So mm. you find your people. It's such a cliche, but yeah, you know, you do. Even you describing that, I've used a lot of energy. I know that you will have expended a lot of energy just revisiting that. And it's an important description of how after diagnosis, you're adjusting and having to reconfigure everything that you've ever known about yourself mm -hmm. up to that point and try and understand that while also trying to continue living and being yeah. you know, who you are. And a lot of the time, yeah, masking as you described is presenting behaviours that make the people around you more comfortable. And those might not be the most efficient behaviours for you because they're not the most organic. If you go and ask somebody who's acted on stage in, in on West End when right, they come right, off stage, right, 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 how are you tired? tired? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a big thing. And if you do they that, call your us whole high life. functioning. They should call us high masking, right? Because mm. that high function. I mean, you presumably are familiar with this, but I'm going to say it to the listeners. That high function. If you describe someone as high functioning, that describes their impact on you. It does not describe their experience. Describe them as high masking. That gives you some kind of insight into what's actually going on, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and that's important to recognise because. Being able to communicate that information to the people around you will give them a bit of an understanding of what they're going through. Because I guess looking at it from the other side, they've known one person forever and that person has changed after a 90 minute consultation. <laughs> Almost. They come out somebody completely different and it probably is quite hard to comprehend how that could be possible. But it is. It really is drawing back the curtain. Yeah. and being like oh this is actually what, yeah. what's really there yeah. so there is a lot of adjustment it sounds like you're making sense of it, it and that's that's kind of what you can do you published two really insightful articles in dj mag 
where you're a music writer. Is that different from a journalist? I've got no formal qualification okay. as a journalist. And I think there are journalists who spend three years doing a yeah. degree, maybe a postgrad as well. I didn't really feel like I could call myself that way. I respect that. Just a guy who writes. So yeah. Well, writes very well. See, your two articles came out. One, the first one, 14th of September 22. The next yeah. one on the 13th of September 23. Was that intentional? Not at all. No. no. <laughs> Um, but it does tie in with uh, my diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. I hope I haven't just like introduced something that's going to really pee you off forever, that it Not wasn't on the 14th. But um, the first, exploring the relationship between neurodiversity and dance music. Yeah. I haven't seen many articles, even in other industries, doing what you did. Talking about this subject in such an eloquent manner with a lot of sources in there. It's a really fantastic article. And when I read it, it was one of those defining moments, you know, wow, like somebody else is going through this, you know? If, if I can use an example, I just watched Mr. Bates versus the post office. Have you read or heard of that? Uh, I, no, but I'm aware of what's, yeah. what's going on vaguely. You know? Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, it's, it's about the massive scandal that took place in the UK in the last few decades, whereby lots of people working at the post office who um, essentially had sort of franchises were accused of stealing money from the post office. But the problem was actually software that the post office had spent a lot of money on, which was faulty. And there was a massive cover up and lots of people ended up losing loads of money, going to prison for committed suicide, I believe. So a massive problem. And the link I'm drawing is at the start, lots of the people involved were told by the post office when they were complaining about the machine that they're the only one. No one else has complained of this, which was a lie. And you see when the first few people learn that somebody else has gone through it, and the relief oh, that washes okay. over them. Yeah. Of course, the situation's not the same thing at all. I get I'm not what trying you're saying, to but, you know, when I read that article, it was that similar feeling. So when I watched the documentary this weekend, I could really empathise. What's with the what word for that? Feeling. The word for when you realise you're not alone and there are people who've had exactly the same experience as you. What is the word for um, that? I bet the Germans have got a brilliant compound um, noun for that or whatever, right? I don't know what the exact word for that is. But yeah. but I know there's one called Sonder, which is and it's a neolog, a new word, which says that it's the feeling that you get when you realise that even the stranger walking past you is going through their own experiences that are just as significant Swedish, to them as yours. Dutch, Danish. Somewhere in that yeah. region, yeah. yeah. When I read your article, I felt that kind of being seen, because I was quite early on. So I wanted to ask you, first of all, what was your inspiration to write that article? And also, what was the process like for you? So the inspiration was my own diagnosis. And then, like I, I think I've mentioned, I became quite evangelical about the subject, really fascinated by um, what it meant to be ADHD and then to be autistic and what that meant in terms of how I experienced sound and nightclubs and how I experienced music, but also how I experienced the, the collecting and curating and understanding music and how I think about music in terms of DJing. I mentioned before about pattern connection. It's not the same for all neurodivergent people, but one thing that I am particularly great at is coming up with connections and connecting things in my head kind of quickly in the middle of the creative process. I do it when I'm writing. My best ideas come not from thinking them up, but from the actual act mm. of writing. Mm. And it's the same with DJing when I'm in the mix. 
my brain can kind of draw a few uh, dots, make some connections in my head. Oh, you're playing this, they like that. You know those three tunes from seven years ago that, do you know what I mean? It can make those connections really quickly. And they, I think that's a really uh, neurodivergent thing, like a kind of strength that I've managed to pinpoint and acknowledge. Mm. Third time in the interview, what was the question? Uh, what Your inspiration for writing it and what the process was actually like. The inspiration for writing it was my own experiences and my continuing kind of knowledge and the process of writing that article. Yeah, I mean, I just looked for people I advertised on Twitter. When it was before Twitter went to shit. You could still do some decent <laughs> journalism work on there. You could actually put a call out and get some decent people. And the thing I found once I started talking to people was everyone's neurodivergent experience is different, but it's also everyone's experience is the same and we all had certain things that we had in common these are people in the, the people that i spoke to in the, uh, for the um the piece yeah uh, so our experience uh of the nightclub environment particularly our experience of loud music and lights and that kind of disorientating experience most of us found that very calming mm. as opposed to the kind of exciting lots of us had substance issues Lots of us had loads of experiences in common and that was the most touching thing about writing that because once I'd gone through it and it got published, I just had like two weeks of people sending me these beautiful messages saying, oh my God, I recognise myself, I didn't know. Oh my God, I'm going to get diagnosed. Proper, genuine, I'm getting goosebumps, just telling you proper moments of people getting in touch with me, telling me they're in floods of tears, finally they understand what, what's going on. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. that's that word, that mo feeling that connection. Goosebumps, man. Yeah, and to know that you can do that for someone. And to know because you know what it meant for you. Yeah, and it was beautiful for me to write it all down. That's a really lovely process. I loved being able to express my love for dance music culture in terms that I finally understood. I loved being able to see how I had been so drawn to DJing, how I loved it and why I was so good at it and why it worked for me. Mm. How it's a perfect role for an autistic ADHD person. Mm. You get to be a part of a party that you might have a trouble fitting in with otherwise but you get to get some of that. Well, those neurotypicals, man, they get transcendence and joy just like that. It's really easy for them, do you know what I mean? It's going to be harder for us, but you get to get some of that by being a DJ, but you get to be in your own space as well. And it's not the same for all of us, but as an autistic person, I do like to be in my own space. And the clearly defined roles of a DJ, I know what I have to do. Like I said, that kind of uh, ability to hold lots of information in my head and then draw on it and use it to make a perfect selection for that moment. All that stuff, you know, that's just a perfect match, isn't it? Yeah. I've got a theory about that, if you want to hear my theory. Yeah. There's an idea, this is what my, my next book's going to be about. Um, if you look at DJing the role, it looks as though it's a perfect role for neurodivergent people because of all those reasons I just said. Lots of autistic people are brilliant at curation and collecting and joining the dots, making connections between music that make for a really good DJ. Lots of ADHD people are really good at reading the room. Um, they have that kind of big personality, that urge to communicate, all these things. And like I say, the autistic urge to curate and collect and become really fucking knowledgeable about this particular area of dance music, right? They're all really neurodivergent traits that seem to match perfectly DJing, don't they? That's serendipitous, isn't it? How <laughs> lucky that happened. But maybe it isn't luck, right? If you think back to those early DJ pioneers, I think of people like Francis Grasso, Grandmaster Flash, Nicky Ciano, these people who were driven to come up with new techniques and new technologies just to ensure they could move from one piece of music to another piece nice and smoothly. It seems to me to be incredibly fucking autistic, right? And the more I think about it, the Grandmaster Flash, bless him, the hours he spent in his bedroom trying to work out all those different technical limitations, having to invent DJ mixers and be able to listen to records in his ear without them coming out the main sound system, being able to pitch stuff up to get them to match and mix. It seems incredibly autistic to me.
And I wonder whether the history of DJing is actually the history of neurodiversity and the history of autism and ADHD. And the reason there's that so-called serendipitous link between the skill set of a DJ and neurodivergence isn't just serendipitous at all. It's because we fucking invented that shit. That's what I think. That is a really fascinating theory. I look forward to reading what you've come out with. And it's interesting because music is such a central part of the collective culture, whether you're neurodivergent or not. Yeah. I don't so, know that Grandmaster Flash is autistic, by the way. That's just yeah. a guess. He may well <laughs> not be. He may well be, you know, <laughs> might find that really offensive. Yeah. I don't know. It just struck me that so many of those early pioneers, the things that they were trying to achieve and the way that they did it, I particularly love the fact that for so many early DJs, they just wanted to make things smooth and neat and tidy and work really intricately and really fastidiously. Mm. And take, I guess, non-linear thinking patterns right, 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 right. try and put them into a tidy format that they envisage. Yeah. I was listening to Buster Rhymes recently and he was talking about genius, like, um, you're mad, essentially. You know, you're a bit of a joke. Until it works. Exactly. And then when it works, you're, you're a genius. And you have flash. To... I mean, he was laughed off the stage the first time he did his thing, literally. You know yeah. what I mean? And then... And you have to power... It. No, yeah, power through, through it. it. And that's like really unfortunate, isn't it? Because I think for a lot of people, you then don't get to enjoy the outcome when you've had to struggle right. so hard. Yeah, because yeah, it yeah. then takes on partly a different meaning, yeah. maybe having to prove. Yeah. And I think that actually does hop back to what you were describing earlier about being young, having a lot of criticism... Yeah. that affecting your self-esteem and making increased sensitivity, defensiveness, anticipating that you're going to be criticised. It's a trauma response. Yeah. Simple as that. We're just trauma-fucking-tised. Mm. You know, inside, I'm a little boy walking around traumatised. But the, the other side of that is that it drives you to work incredibly hard because you'll never be good enough and no one will ever love you and you'll never be worth anything. So you try and <laughs> produce something beautiful to show people. So I am worth something. And then you go, yeah, it's fucking shit. I know, sorry. And then you, do you know what I mean? So there's two sides to it. Yeah. <laughs> they're not very funny though, either of them really. I'm laughing, but I mean, I think, I think that is true. I think that part of the drive to produce beautiful things or to do really good work is related to that, isn't it? To mm. Wanting yeah. to be worthy, yeah. <laughs> want to be loved. <laughs> It's, it's not even funny. It's very true. Yeah. You know, in the last episode, we discussed exactly that. And I know it sounds it's soft, I guess, in a way, but in your first article, yeah. you used a quote that sums this up a little bit. Dr. Lloyd called neurodiversity the new frontier in terms yeah. of equality and inclusion. Absolutely. You know? 100%. It's it honestly, it's the new revolution. It's the new equality struggle, and it ties in with all the other equality struggles. 100%. I think there's, there's a bit of beauty in it because... A lot of the other equality struggles affect people who can be very easily grouped. Right, 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 right. And therefore targeted in a way. Yeah, yeah. But neurodiversity, because it actually is such a spread of people, and because you can find these people in, in different classes and cultures. Right, right, right. Exactly. Right, right, right. That's where it being the new frontier gives you hope that it can actually have a wider impact than on just neurodivergent people. Yeah. You know? My belief is that every struggle for equality in some way supports the other struggles for equality as much as we can you know generalize about those kind of things right yeah i'm going to read out a few quotes from the article cool okay and I want you to comment on them all right first one when i first discovered club culture i found somewhere that welcomed me an awkward music nerd unreservedly my obsessive nature found a focus in music and DJing, and that obsessiveness was suddenly a bonus, not something weird. Yeah. It's like I was talking about, I was uh, 
a record collecting nerd who knew loads about records and that was just nerdy until I found the place where that was actually a brilliant thing. Mm. And suddenly it changes, right? Yeah. yeah. The second, the sensory stimulation of the rave club environment, the lights, the loud music, feeling the bass in my gut, the constant movement of the dance floor, all made me feel happy, engaged, excited, but also at peace. They all generate dopamine, don't they? I mean, dancing generates dopamine. I didn't know that I had a paucity of dopamine in my brain. That's why I was drawn to break dancing. That's why I've loved dancing and movement. That's, do you know what I mean? Mm. Because it generates dopamine. I was just desperately would hook onto anything that gave me dopamine. It's the same with those other things. They uh, boost your dopamine. Mm. You would think that loud music and flashing lights and a disorientating environment would make you feel disorientated and a bit kind of hyped up. It does exactly the opposite for a lot of people like me in that it gives us dopamine and therefore uh, centres us, gives us a, a sense of calm. Uh, like we're at home kind of thing mm. makes us feel a bit more normal more like what I think other people feel like all the time right do you mean that it elevates you I think it delivers dopamine and I think that since I've been on uh, Ritalin which uh, has increased the amount of dopamine um, in my system daily I can see improvements in my mood and my ability to do certain things and I think that environment of the nightclub um, it's not like taking Ritalin exactly but it's a similar thing in that there can be a mood improver and like I say it can uh, have a calming clearing kind of influence rather than an, you would expect a more exciting oh my god this is crazy whereas actually it's much kind of calmer it's almost like your executive function is a bit more improved you can think clearly you're just at home happy and soothed and comfortable in this crazy environment because mm. it's just stimulating you in a way that is really incredibly desirable I mm. guess. it's quite difficult to get your head around that concept well, it's paradoxical sense. isn't it really? yeah and also exactly. you add into the fact that i'm autistic and occasionally i hate that shit and it's really over it's too much and i get over stimulated and you know it becomes painful or you know it starts to hurt my uh it's hard to describe what uh, those kind of sensory experiences are like. But yeah, it's odd because there are times when those kind of things can be too much as well. Yeah. Is that hypersensitivity as well, in a sense? I don't think it's hypersensitivity. I think... Um, overstimulation. Overstimulation mm. is too much. And that can build up over several days and be built of all sorts of things, not just obvious things like lights and smells and sounds. It can build up emotionally over a period of time as well, I think, and with stress. And yeah. It might be that uh, being in a particularly uh, active environment might be the last straw mm. yeah mm. when you talk about movement and dance that's an important concept i think mm. because one of the problems with adhd is forgetting the basic necessities of life as in <laughs> to eat to exercise etc and that's yeah, part yeah, of you yeah, know yeah, the executive dysfunction yeah, yeah. and I think, I think it's important because it creates an opportunity so if dance and music are what you enjoy doing they are typically thought of kind of leisure activities and yeah. you shouldn't be going out to, you know, you've got work or whatever, don't go out to a club or to wherever. But actually, it may be therapeutic. Extraordinarily therapeutic, really important in building communities in helping consolidate friendships, make new connections. A lot of people, not everyone, I mean, people do just go to clubs to be hedonistic, but a lot of people, uh, they get more from that experience. Because uh, particularly in dance music, a lot of clubs are really welcoming, they're really tolerant, they're really egalitarian. And a lot of people bring that kind of stuff back home to their real lives as well, you know. 100%. Looking back, I understand now that doing activities that are very stimulating, that are recreational, make me better yeah. as a scientist and 
Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, but they don't fit in with the normative idea of being productive and healthy and normal, right? Yeah. yeah. Those three things. Yeah. If you're productive and healthy and normal, you don't stay up all weekend dancing to music that sounds like a car alarm because you'll be too tired for work on, uh, on Monday, you know? But then if you can't sleep because you're understimulated during the day and then... Yeah. Also, since when did getting to work on Monday morning become the most important thing for humanity? What about yeah. self-expression and community and building? What about having some fun, enjoying yourself and... Yeah. And who defined that concept anyway? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, next. Yeah. It rescued me countless times over the last few decades from the harsh realities of life, provided solace, articulated my emotions better than I ever could, and it helped me to understand myself and others. It's my home. Dance music saved my life. Now I have a much clearer idea why. It's really nice, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, we didn't know. I didn't know that that was what I was seeking or that was what I was getting. Mm. I guess I just naturally sought the experiences and the places where I felt at home. That, you know, made me feel good. But yeah, it's all right there, isn't it? Yeah. There is a, something very nice about having that opportunity to sort of look at something written down or like recorded that you've done it in your creative sense before you knew, because it almost is validation that this is what I was thinking before and now I have language to put to it. I get, yeah, it's a strange experience to read my book because I wrote it just before, not exactly a breakdown, but before I reached quite a low ebb mm. and then led, led to me being diagnosed. Maybe it was an extraordinarily long breakdown. But yeah, like I said, there are passages in there that just scream autism or scream ADHD. There are passages that describe my inability to fit in and my inability to live up to the idea of what a DJ might be in terms of being sociable and all that kind of thing. It's an odd sensation that it's so clear there. But you, like you say, there wasn't the language there to express it. I didn't have the knowledge, so I just described it. There are passages where I say I wasn't sociable enough. I didn't fit in. And I, that seems to be why I, I wasn't successful. And I just kind of left it at that. And it's kind of like I just wandered through my life assuming that I'd failed because I wasn't sociable enough or because I wasn't, I was a bit awkward or because I didn't fit in with what people thought a fun DJ should be. It's another part of that kind of internalising the issues that have come from being undiagnosed, I guess. Mm. Yeah. It's, yeah. I wrote an album back in 2017, which I've never released, and listening back to the lyrics, I find quite, yeah, quite validating. Is it before your diagnosis? Before, wait, and yeah, years it, before. Giving right, you some clues. Before. Absolutely. It's almost like your subconscious is screaming at you. Yeah. But yeah, lacking the, the um, language, right? Yeah, that's it. That's why this is important. Exactly. That's why that article is important. That's why this shit is important. Yeah. Other Me. people shouldn't have to fucking spend 50 years of their life thinking they're a useless cunt. Mm. And, and I think for kids and for parents who have young children who they might not understand the behaviour that they see their child exhibiting and yeah. mistake it or misdiagnose it for bad behaviour or another psychiatric disorder because so many people, I think especially young girls, yeah. are misdiagnosed. <laughs> yeah. um, and like you're saying now, you do have an opportunity when you understand what's going on to reframe how you see yourself. Yeah. And self-esteem and emotional dysregulation is the core, I'd say, central feature in ADHD. Yeah. And there was a recent study in Harvard. The first author is Kali Ginnap. And it mm -hmm. was focus groups, looking at adults with ADHD, yeah. talking about the symptoms that they experience mm -hmm. and those that aren't captured in the traditional hyperactivity, impulsivity, right, 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 right. Um, inattention paradigm. Yeah. 
and it completely misses a lot of what people actually experience and that's because you're looking at it from the outside yeah yeah so much of it was to do with emotional dysregulation and one of the issues that came up that i've not heard about before was alexithymia which is the inability to communicate to somebody else how you're feeling at the moment yeah. and that can be because you don't actually know you're just like i'm just feeling yeah. uncomfortable yeah. and i don't know what or why yeah no one has a clue about that and those are the things that are real every fucking day. Yeah. And I still struggle with now. I still, I didn't realise until I went into therapy, I'd been using the wrong words to describe some emotions my entire life. Yeah. I just got it wrong. And it's no wonder I had communication problems when I would say to someone, oh, that makes me a bit cross. And what I meant was furious. Do you know what I mean? Or, you know, <laughs> yeah. I just got st stuff yeah. like that, really or basic stuff. like sad or anxious. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, obviously, as neurodivergent people in a neurotypical world, Often, our default setting is anxiety anyway, do you know what I mean? Mm. Well, it was for me. Yeah. And yeah. how well somebody's able to understand that determines the relationships that you're going to keep yeah. with them. And that gives a little bit of a flavour of how powerful something that looks so small is. Yeah. Thanks for writing that article, because definitely for me it was before and after reading that article. My pleasure, but thank you. Think for other people as well. The final part of the show, which is my favourite part, your three pivotal tracks. Okay. And this is where you're going to tell us about three songs or tracks that are of personal significance to you. And it can be for whatever reason. I'm going to play them. All right, we're going to talk about music. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. So, what's your first track? I can't remember. <laughs> okay. Greg Diamond, Bionic Boogie, Hot, Hot Butterfly, Butterfly, Papillon. They might be called pap Papillon, brackets, Hot Butterfly. I'm not sure which. So the reason I love this record is Luther Vandross on vocals, right? Yeah. Before he was famous, uh, I was a big Luther Vandross at the time when I heard it, um, which I first heard it in, kind of, I don't know, probably 87, 88. Okay, so a little right. while after it was... Yeah, like maybe five, six, seven years after it came out, and by which time Luther was really famous yeah, and making mainstream soul music. Um, but I heard it on a hugely influential compilation called Urban Classics. Um, which was one of those life-changing records for me. Were you familiar with Urban Classics? No. Oh, you have to look up Urban Classics. No. Okay, so... No. Maybe really... too young for once. Yeah, no, seriously, <laughs> I mean, it was a huge deal, right? Uh, but it had this track on it. Um... It's been reworked a few times. Yeah, it has, yeah, right? but nothing ever Not measures... that as good as... Yeah, for me, that's you know, the best one. Though. I think it's... Yeah, I think there's not a lot of point in doing much to it, really. Some records just best to leave them alone, really, I think. Um... But yes, yeah, so I was really into it because I was really into Luther, but I was just discovering at that age that there was a whole world of underground music that never got in the charts, that never got played on national radio or the TV, but that seemed to be much better than all the music that got to number one. And that tune really epitomised it for me. It was a beautiful song, impeccably produced. Every part of it is perfect, the, from the very, very first opening little uh, string figure that opens it. The piano that uh, Greg Diamond play, plays is ridiculously honky-tonk funky in a way that I've not really heard before. Luther's vocals, fucking heart-stoppingly beautiful, man. The whole thing is just perfect. And it came from this album that was full of records that I'd never heard of, and I couldn't understand why everyone didn't know them. 
Like the Jackson Sisters, I Believe in Miracles. Do you know that one? Mm, of course. Yes. That's the first time I heard that record because before then, no one had heard that record. It was a secret record that only DJs knew. That's nice. So, yeah, I come from a time where before Jackson Sisters existed, no one knew what that was. And then I heard it for the first time on that album, along with the Greg Diamond track. And so that track's important to me because it made me realise at probably the age of 16 that there was a whole world of better music underground and that this whole getting in the charts or whatever was stuff that you knew or that heard on the radio that anyone could get wasn't as good as the, the underground stuff that existed on compilation albums like that. It was a product of the London rare groove scene, right? So in 1985, 86, 87, DJs like Barry Sharp and uh, Norman Jay and Noel, I've forgotten his surname, they were putting on warehouse parties, playing like hip hop, but lots of rare groove funk records. And they found records like that one and a lot of James Brown records from the early 70s sounded astonishingly good on the big sound system. Right. And Polydor, and I think Marco and Femi from The Young Disciples actually released a bunch of those records on white labels, just bootlegs, and they were making quite a few sheets. Polydor got really edgy about it because they were losing all these profits, so they put out all these albums, Urban Classics. Mm. And they also released James Brown in the Jungle Groove, Groove compilation, which had the Danny Crivet edit of Funky Drummer on it. So all of a sudden, all these bits of audio history from black American culture are suddenly widely available to be sampled. And you can see at that point in the, what, 86, is when hip hop starts sampling those funk records. Mm. There's a whole, I've kind of gone off and into then they come, This and is they my come special out. interest. What are my special interest? <laughs> this is what it's about. So yeah. talk ad infinitum. So yeah, that's, that's why I love that record and that period and that album, Urban Classics Volume 1. It's got some of the most finest funk records in the world ever recorded on it. And that is not hyperbole, it's just true. So this so, was your sort of introduction, your gateway into, yeah, I was into underground. Yeah, I was into soul music and I've been into electro and early hip hop and that. But I lived in a little town in Suffolk. Uh, there weren't any decent record shops. It was very hard to get underground music or to even know it existed. There wasn't the internet. I bought Blues and Soul, but I was too young to go to clubs. Yep. Blues and Soul magazine, <laughs> okay. which reviewed records that weren't in the charts, but I didn't really know where to get them. But yeah, this kind of glut of rare groove compilations in whatever, 86, 87, kind of really opened my eyes to the world of underground music. Yeah, you must have read lots of reviews, but how are you going to get them? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, I, I used to read about um, club nights that were going on, sorry, I spat them, but I think you're on me. Club nights that were going on like uh, on the coast in Suffolk where I grew up and um, about controversies in the soul clubbing world between Northern Soul and the new jazz funk and stuff. And I, hadn't, I was, you know, 13, didn't know what the hell this, they were on about, but I just was captivated by this world of underground, the nightclubs and the real authentic culture that was, wasn't about charts and stuff. So that's why that record's important. Amazing. The second record, can I remember? Second record it's is one you. by me. I thought yeah. I'd choose one of mine because I'm trying to reclaim my, uh, uh, my value and, uh, you so, know, sing, sing my own praises. T tell me, what's your second track? I picked, uh, yeah, I picked Long Relationships by Harold Heath, which was... Um, no. Nope. Wait, have I not? Trust the Ghost. Trust, oh, I picked that one, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah, so my second track is Trust the Ghost by Harold Heath, one of mine. I was listening to it the other day, uh, I was putting it on an Instagram reel, 
and it just struck me that I really like it, it's really nice. I've made a lot of records, I don't like all of them. Some of them I don't even remember making them, some of them I kind of think, is that really me? Sometimes I check out a, a tune that I made, you know, I'm on Beatport or whatever, and I listen to it, and I literally have no recollection of making it. I'm quite surprised that really? I made the bongos so loud in there, and I'm like, that's not very good. But that one I love. It's also got an odd time signature. It's like a 12-4 or something. Oh, interesting. I don't know. I don't think I've noticed that. I think, uh, yeah, I was but really... I didn't notice I, that was odd I, for the I genre. was really pleased with myself, because to me, the chords don't go in fours or something, or eights. I don't have enough musical knowledge to explain that very well. But I like <laughs> yeah. it. It's a nice track here. So. It is a very nice track. Yeah. It's like it's that deep health that I, I just find that I disappear. Do you know what I mean? I'm Transportive. I'm, yeah, it's, it's transportive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it's such a good tune. And so kind of you, thank you. This was on your most recent album. So this is quite a recent track, yeah. So yeah. it would have been, I guess, 2016, 17, 18, something like that, maybe. It was 13, 14, maybe. Can't remember. Okay. I made so many. Like, yeah, you make so many, and only some of them yeah. are good. So that's the interesting thing. Some of them are really good, but some of them are just mediocre. And I'm, you know, that's the way it goes, I guess. Mm. And what about it makes it your favourite of yours? It's or not, not necessarily yeah, the favourite. Yeah, uh, sorry, not my favourite. It's one of them. <laughs> uh, I, don't know, I think it's clever. I think it works quite well. I think there's lots of. It's not overdone. I think there's one nice musical idea. The kind of contrast between the bass line and the chords. Like the chords that I really like. There's mm -hmm. a couple of chords that um, have unexpected root notes that are really pleasing to my ear. <laughs> it would have worked out on the guitar. You know, so stuff like that, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And do you remember how long it took you to make it? No, but it would have been on and off a few hours over two or three days, I guess, and then maybe finish it off. It's hard to say some of them came together quickly. The ones that come together quickly are usually the better ones, where you spend less time. Mm. A lot of, um, I'd say maybe my favourite, um, Wish You Were Here. That's what I know from such a good job. Yeah, it's weird. A lot of people like that one. Yeah, you never know why. Once the records leave your studio, you never know who's going to like them and why, or what, which ones will work and which ones don't, really. It's quite a, an odd little mystery. I didn't know that I knew your tracks, yeah. as in I didn't put together that yeah, was yeah. you. So you were definitely part of my, um, when my fame and med school, so yeah, between 2011 and 2017. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. Final track. So the final track is a track oh. from last year. It's by Little Dragon and it's called Sadness. reason I picked it is just to illustrate uh, something we were talking about earlier because it's a track that I've been stimming with uh, for the last few months so for people who might not know um, <laughs> stimming is a, an autistic behavior I've been uh, kind of using this as a stimulatory exercise this kind of I don't know it helps me concentrate maybe it helps me stay on target I'm not really mm. sure it's a self-stimulatory yeah I mean it's just I, don't, I just I like doing it and why shouldn't I do it mm. I want to do it yeah. yeah, so it's sort of a fidget, huh? yeah. which you can hear sort of clicking. Yeah, sorry, that's been clicking through the sound of the hole into you. That's what this is. Um, but the reason I mentioned this is that uh, for me, sometimes music can be a stimulatory, a kind of self-soothing or a, a, a activity, but also one that gives me huge amounts of dopamine. And I mentioned this track because the first, I don't know, it's about three minutes long, I guess, and the first minute, minute and a half, it's okay. Yeah, it's all right, it's whatever. And then halfway through, it kicks off into this most beautiful 
supercharged version of the first half mm. of it that melodically is just astonishing. It's simple, but it's really, really elegant and beautiful. And I love the vocalist from Little Dragon. I think she's got an exquisite timbre to her voice anyway. I love her fucking delivery. I love the little melodic tricks she does on it. I love the rhythmic way, uh, the way the tune. Oh, God, I just love it so much. So, yeah, I've been listening to it a lot over the last few months. Um, I will often listen to it, uh, you know, for an hour when I'm out exercising. Mm. Just over and, over. and when I do it, I just listen for that bit in the second half. Like, I put up the first half. The first half's nice because it almost builds you up. It's like a palate cleanser or you know, a tension builder. But yeah, I could listen to that second half again and again, and I will rinse that out. And at some point, I'll have to stop listening to it because the dopamine will be gone. Yeah. And you won't listen to it for like four months. Yeah. <laughs> I, I picked that just because I, I love the way that it illustrates how you can use music like that. And it's something I've really embraced since my diagnosis. Because I used to think that it wasn't what you should do with music. When you should, say use it like that, what do you mean? I mean, uh, enjoying just listening to something over and over again, or even just picking out the bit that I like and listening to that over and over again, because I'd kind of internalised that ableism that said we shouldn't listen to music like that. That's not how you listen to music. Why would you listen to it over and over again? It turns out I really love doing that. So embracing that has been a beautiful thing. Mm. Like you said, this track is a lot about like the sonics and the texture, mm -hmm. I'd say. It is quite classic of Little Dragon when they're sort of blending electronic and sort of other genres. And they're all switching. about texture. Really exactly. Perfectly defined texture. Yeah. Yeah. And, and contrasting and juxtapositions of lovely textures. Mm. Yeah, they're very much about that. That's satisfying. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. Yeah. Takes me back to your first article when you're talking about feeling the bass, the feeling of it. Yeah. This, as in the tacit feeling of it in your gut. You enjoy a lot of those sort of sensory elements yeah. that aren't actually to do with the sound. Yeah, I get, I didn't realise this, but through therapy I've realised I can, I get a bit of synesthesia sometimes. I think that's involved. Synesthesia. I don't know how to say it. How do you say it? Synesthesia. Synesthesia. Synesthesia, that's when you're afraid, afraid of synthesizers, right? Oh. I just <laughs> made that up. How do you say it? Synesthesia. I was speaking about that in therapy the other day. Yeah, kind of uh, getting kind of confused sensory impressions mm. of particularly in high emotional situations but yeah I do get that a little bit with music sometimes I get a sense like I've got then like a, ten, a, a tastiness to it kind of thing mm. or, or a, I might get a sense of weight to it or of glittering or shimmeriness as well it's not just an audio experience yeah synesthesia is when you have say, a crossing of your yeah. sensory pathways so and it's when like Pharrell describes seeing sounds so yeah. he sees colours when he hears yeah. certain tones but yours is more textures really hard to describe mm. yeah there's a sense of texture maybe touch like i say sometimes it's a sense of weight or a sense of air or a sense of size mm. right yeah. really hard to describe and, and it's something that i would never have been able to vocalize or describe to someone until i was diagnosed because i didn't even know that it was happening and only since i've been diagnosed and realized oh that's a thing that might be applicable to me and then i think about these experiences and oh my god that's exactly what it is yeah stimming again stimming or, or experiencing things in multi-sensory, slightly confused, but quite ways that make sense to me. Mm. And I think that informs my writing a little bit as well. If I experience a piece of music as a, a glittering stream, as well as a kind of sonic experience, or if it has a sense of seriousness or ponderousness to it that isn't specifically in the music, but that somehow that's triggered something in me that can really help me write about the music, mm. I guess. Yeah. And it makes sense. I mean, describe just listen to it over and over again because if you're getting that 
sensory synesthetic kind of feeling and it's giving you pleasure yeah. that in literal terms is like 500 micrograms of dopamine yeah. bang yeah gives you pleasure yeah of course you're going to listen to it again yeah, if you're yeah. under stimulated why would you not you know? yeah. yeah stimming is something that I, I found really helpful to understand as a concept because yeah. um, you described before substances associated with club culture that would help you to reach that yeah. level of stimulation. Yeah, all the uppers, the cocaine and the amphetamine particularly, yeah. And studies in children, they looked at sugar consumption and binge in yeah. ADHD kids yeah. versus non-ADHD kids and it was massive yeah. in the ADHD kids. Well, interestingly, since I've been on Ritalin, I binge eat less. Yeah. Don't need to. Yeah. But I remember that stimulatory effect of it, particularly the same with uh, crunchy foods as well. There's a sensory pleasure, not so much in the tastes, but just in the actual yeah-ness of it. Right? Yeah, yeah. And tonic water. Oh, right. Cold, yeah, yeah. fizzy. The, the popping at the back of your throat is kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> it's, it's on the edge, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's weird because it's like, that wakes me up somehow. <laughs> a somewhat bizarre concept, but it's useful to know. If yeah, and you, it's also it's time that we unbizarred it, right? Yeah. Because it's actually, I mean, you use that word bizarre because it is in the context of the world considered bizarre. From the outside, yeah. There's fucking nothing wrong with taking a bit of pleasure from tonic water or tasting music, right? They just, yeah. And now I don't feel anxious or like understimulated or things that you would see from the outside as being negative behaviours. <laughs> you can embrace yeah. the sensation of the tonic water. Yeah. We all can. What was life? I remember when I used to have a dating app profile, it was yeah. like tonic water, and that was always the odd the thing that people would be like, okay. what the hell? That's my thing. <laughs> and yeah, no one yeah. So then in the years afterwards, when fever trees started to come out, it was like flavours for everything. Yeah. Look, see? <laughs> Funnily enough, talking about dating apps, I'm on an autistic dating app. Um, I'm married, happily married, so I'm not on there looking for love. You can specify if you're just looking for friendship or kind of connection. Right. Because uh, since I've been diagnosed, I've been seeking neurodivergent company. But um, there's, it's really a lovely little app. It's called Hiki, I think, H-I-K-I. And it's got like a feed and you can kind of personalise the feed to your special interests. Um, and it's, it's got this section where you can put your own profile up there, but then it's got a match section. Uh, where you could, in theory, match with other autistic people. But I think they probably never had to update it because I reckon every single autistic person on there goes, oh, you seem interesting. Uh, I don't know what to do. And just close the Because <laughs> that's what I do to every single one. I'm like, oh, well, never mind. We have another life. Do you know what I mean? But, um, yeah, who knows? Yeah. How has it been? Um, your partner is? My wife. Oh, your wife. Yeah. So I should probably ask her. But from your perspective, you, how has it been for, been her? for her? Really it's fucking difficult, mm. so difficult, bless her, really mm. difficult. Um, it's been traumatic for me to go into therapy and that's obviously had a knock-on effect at home. It's uh, been difficult for her to understand what's going on and to understand and deal with me unmasking and trying to express myself in a more authentic way. It's been hugely challenging, man, all over the shop. Mm. But we were learning together, you know, and she's still with me, bless her. Mm. Um, sounds like she's an amazing support and I'm sure needs support as well. It's hard for the partner. I mean, you know, I could sit here and tell you how traumatic it's been for me the last year, year and a half, two years, and it has. It's been fucking awful, but obviously I've had a partner with me the whole time. We've lived together in a little flat and she's seen it all. She's had to witness my, you know, the lowest of lows and, you know, the anger and the coming to terms with all this crazy shit. And then it's very hard for the partners as well. Very hard. At the end of it, they get a slightly new person who's different from who they married. And they might even feel a bit tricked. And I, I wouldn't really blame them for feeling that because 
there has been a different version of me in that marriage. Mm. Luckily, yeah, like I say, luckily, God bless her, my beautiful wife is still with me. Fingers crossed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> still yeah. uh, when you say a new person, yeah, I mean, how it, much do you think is different and which elements yeah, do you it's think not, It's not remain? a new person, but... Um, it's not, it is and it isn't. You're still the same person, but um, there are differences. There's differences in how you express yourself and how you communicate. Yeah. Mm. You're the same and different, you know. I think if I was completely different, she wouldn't have stuck around. So I'm still the same person, but things are different. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Interactions. I guess it happens to a certain degree in everyone as your life changes and... You know, every time something kind of happens to you or you experience something, especially when it's traumatic, loss of a relationship, a loved one or something like that, you have to shift and remould to fit the new life that you've got that was different yesterday kind of thing. Um, but of course here, it's different in a sense because you haven't lost somebody in terms of, oh, I can't speak to that person again. Mm -hmm. They're still there. Yeah. But they've learned about something fundamental to who you are yeah right which is a big change and that leads me on to the next question which is about you mentioning you wanting a community and company right. with neurodivergence yeah. and the value that that can have in teaching you techniques or helping you to understand what you're experiencing yeah i mean i guess i mean for me it's much less practical i think it's just a realization that that neurodivergent company can be a really wonderful, easy thing. It's not always mm. going to be like that. You can't assume that every neurodivergent person is going to be cool because they're not. Yeah. Have you met someone that was like, yeah. <laughs> well, I joined, hey, a, I joined an ADHD group in Brighton, you know, looking for to connect with people who are going through the same experience. And you often meet people and chat to them and it's really lovely. And you've got this thing in common and you have so much shared experience. But you might also meet someone who's really, really dull, and really awful and might be really you know, neurodivergent and not know it and just have a really boring special interest and you just, you know, you're totally with them and you appreciate it and, you know, we're in this community together but also, I just don't want to do... Do you know what I mean? So there's no um, guarantee that just because someone's neurodivergent you're going to get on with them but I have found that one friend that I have who is autistic and has ADHD, I just find I can talk to them in a way... It just gets rid of a whole load of stuff. You can just get straight in. You don't have to do any ridiculous small talk or waste any time yep. and yeah that contact with them is just really precious and I don't know affirming fun relaxed yeah. many things right yeah. yeah it's nice to be able to relax and not have to try and make things work it's nice for things just to work just to be you yeah well, as yeah. much as you can you can't as completely much. unmask all the time right but yeah there's a lot to be said for that ability to be authentic there's a lot to be said for being with someone who would understand things like sensory issues or mm. Like whenever we meet, we always have five or 10 seconds where we're really awkward and we forget how to human and our limbs don't work and we bump into each other and then we just click in and, you know, it's nice to have that experience with someone who completely understands it and who you can just say, oh, we just did that fucking funny thing again. Do you know what I mean? Rather yeah. than it being a bit awkward and you're trying to read and second guess what you should be, do you know what I mean? All that, forget about it. That's a lot of energy, isn't it? Communication can be very efficient as you can use the most efficient method. And that might not be words. Yeah. So for me, growing up in London, when I meet my friends from home, the code switch happens and it's almost like I take off my suit and tie or whatever and put my 
tracksuit bottoms on. Do so your code preferably. switch now. Sorry? Do your code switch now. Let me hear it. I think it'll be inefficient now. Because <laughs> code switching is fascinating. Isn't yeah, it? it is. It is. I think it comes down, especially when communication is... I think as humans, we always try and do the most efficient thing, right? right. Whatever task it is. And so in communication, you can do the same. Right, so, you do the path of least resistance. Exactly. Right, right. So when I go home and I'm with my home friends, mm. I know that for you to understand whether I'm in a good mood or a bad mood might just be when you say hi to me, I raise my eyebrows mm -hmm. in a slightly different way than if I was really happy. Yeah. No words, yeah. you know, I don't have to explain anything. And then my best friend would just know, you know, when you give a clap and a hug, the hug lasts a couple of seconds more and that's his communication back yeah. it's like two seconds and yeah. we've got through what would maybe take 10 minutes to got discuss it. you know yeah. efficiency yeah. right so when you code switch that's i like how you put it in terms of efficiency but it's also really just quite beautiful yeah right? exactly you know yeah I mean? that's the thing when you're efficiency you're saying i don't have to spend a lot of energy to be able to connect with you yeah yeah i wanted to ask one final thing okay Looking forward, what are your hopes for the place of neurodiversity in society in the next sort of few years? Revolution. Man the barricades. Yeah, it's time to, uh, you know, completely turn everything around. One in five of us in this country, all across the world, one in five people are neurodivergent. Um, what does that look like, the solution? I haven't finished the book yet. I told you that. <laughs> I'm reading this excellent book about uh, the... Neurodivergent revolution, which is on the way. Um, what's it look like? It looks like um, my child is currently being tested for autism. And the other day they were going around their friend's house and their mum saw a little message on their phone. And my child basically said, oh, I'm going to bring my own safe foods because I'm a bit concerned about, you know, you are all talking about snacks and that, right? So at that age... They know what safe foods are. They know that if they went there and didn't have them, they would be upset. They have no shame at all about talking to their mates. And when I was that age, I had colossal shame around food. I had terrible food issues, still do. I couldn't eat lots of things because of autistic sensitivity to certain textures. No one even understood that that was a thing. Terrible experiences with food, honestly. Yeah. And the fact that my child is free and lives in a world where he can say those things to us and we understand and they can just go about their day happy. That's what the revolution looks like. You obviously sort of initiated a lot of that through writing these articles. Yeah, that's been a beautiful Sorry. thing in our family because we started talking about it a lot and that brought my child's neurodivergence into a much clearer focus. Hmm. Do you have any advice for other areas of society or other industries where there clearly will be a lot of neurodivergent people, but don't have the freedom or the support to sort of have in place those accommodations. Well, change is coming. So, I mean, at some point they're going to have to, everyone's going to have to accommodate us and they can do it today or tomorrow, but change is coming. We're not going away. Every day people like us get more and more knowledge and every day more and more of these one in five people are getting more information. Hmm. And it's an unsustainable situation to expect us to have this knowledge and information and for there not to be any change with the numbers that are involved and with the level of tragedy that's involved. I'm sure you have some sense of how many people are in prison who have got ADHD. Yeah. So Insane. this is unsustainable. Yeah. And every time we, someone like us has this conversation and a little bit more knowledge is spread between us, we step further to, you know, some kind of more inclusivity. Yeah. And is there any advice that you would have for well, anyone who to, thinks that they may be an undiagnosed neurodivergent? At a very basic level, you would probably want to choose to vote for the political party who would maybe fund the NHS more. 
whoever you think that would be. My sense is that wouldn't be the Tory government. And on a sort of personal, individual level? For me, I found exercise helps a bit. Music helps a bit. Yeah. Community helps. Simple things that, you know, that help everyone. Yeah. This is the thing, right? Equality um, is good for everyone. Because if you and I are having an equal chance to be sociable and to be productive and live up to our, our talents, that benefits everyone else in our lives. Like if I'm happy, my wife's going to be a bit happier, so is my child, you know what I mean? Equality, same with feminism. Feminism is good for everyone and equality is good for everyone and neurodivergent equality is going to be good for everyone and it's coming regardless. So get on board. It's been amazing to have this chat with you. Lovely, it's been a really yeah. nice chat. I've really enjoyed it. Me too. Yeah. So you're working on a couple of books. I'm working on three books at the moment, yep. Three, not yeah. even more than that. Um, and... How can people find out more about you? They can follow me on Instagram, I would say. I'm just Harold Heath on Instagram. There's not many Harold Heaths. Um, get on board there. I put all my uh, writing stuff on there, all my reviews and any DJing I'm doing. Because I do describe myself as an ex-DJ, but I do actually gig occasionally. So, um, yeah, they might be able to come and hear me play or check out some of my articles or my books. Harold, thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. You too, man. Thank you. I'd like to take this opportunity to shed a light on Free Spirit Crazy Diamond. It was started by our very first guest on the show, Ned Nazarali and Lily Nicolosi. Grounded in mindfulness and meditation, Free Spirit Crazy Diamond is where you'll find consciously created crystals and spiritual wellness goods to raise your vibrations, connect to your higher self and balance mind, body and soul. Ned and Lily are working incredibly hard, contributing to community meditation and mindfulness initiatives. It's a great pleasure to introduce freespiritcrazydiamond.com.